0: Welcome to a pod called Quest. I'm Christian Davenport, a.k.a. Bit of Ninja Science. I'm with Derek Darby, a.k.a. Fearless Watcher Sage. In our pod, we utilize what we refer to as our Ptolemaic framework to evaluate the topic of the day. This means we evaluate three subjects, politics, economics, and social cultural factors across three domains, the diagnosis of the problem, the prognosis of where we're going to go, and the means to get from one to the other. Episode 11, Baby Archie Royal Racism and British slash American imperialism. Allegations of racism in the British royal family made big news recently. Meghan Markle told Oprah that royals expressed concern about what color baby Archie would be. Royal racism is only surprised if we forget the UK's historical imperial past. A past that is shaped by different kinds of violence, including economic violence, as we've discussed previously, in its Caribbean colonies and at home toward black migrants. Claudia Jones, born in Trinidad, spent much of her life in the U.S. before being deported for her socialist political views. She moved to Britain and became a vocal critic of Britain's treatment of Caribbean nations and immigrants. What lessons can we learn from her, not only about the U.K., but about the situation of Asians in the U.S. and the migrant crisis on its southern border? Sage, what you got, man?
1: Hey, hey, science,
0: man. What we got, what we got. It's been a minute since we've
1: been on the mic. Or the field and you know, like you always tell me, brother, we never on schedule, but we're going to always be on, on time. time. So we on time, and we, we looking forward to uh, communing with our listeners again, man. So last episode, just to, just to dial you back in we were talking about different types of violence and we focused on two in particular, political and economic violence. And since we last got on the mic, a lot has happened. I mean, stuff is always going on in the world at large and certainly in the United States. Uh, But one of the things that was in the news cycle um, was, as you pointed out, man, the interview that uh, Meghan Markle did with Oprah Winfrey uh, and Prince Harry uh, and the big allegation about royal racism. So that's in the news. Uh, obviously, what's going on in Minneapolis is in the news. Um, but the southern border is big news right now. Um, we got people coming from all over Latin America trying to get into the U.S. Uh, and the other thing that's big is is the anti-Asian hate uh, and the different examples we see of people being attacked, uh, Asian people being attacked in the United States. And so. In different ways, you know, all these, 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 these all raise questions for us about uh, having to do with migration, immigration, uh, and also uh, having to do with what's going on in places that are causing people to want to leave their homes and, and migrate. So, on the menu for today, essentially,
0: we're
1: going to think a little bit about why Royal worries about Archie's skin. May not be that surprising if we think a little bit about the legacy of British imperialism. Um, and we're going to draw some inspiration from one of our favorite political thinkers, Claudia Jones, uh, who we had the good pleasure to uh, teach in our seminar a couple of years ago. Uh, and then we're going to think about imperialism and its relationship to economic violence and, and try to use that to make some sense of what we're seeing on our border here in the US. So, uh, so with that, let me first ask you, my brother,
0: how you been? A brother feeling good. I'm like, yeah, I got shot number two, so you know, feeling um, feeling good before um, before things get worse again potentially. And then the whole idea of how having to go through this again is not is not um, is not cool. And then looking at you know, looking forward to having a break from um, teaching. Um, my love hate relationship with teaching. I mean, I, I love to do it, but I love to write more. So uh, so I'm looking forward to um getting a break and getting some ideas down on the page. So I'm feeling good about that.
1: All good, all good, wonderful. And you?
0: Hey man, I'm I'm doing
1: good. I'm doing good. Uh, I, I uh, you know, trying to trying to be like you one day, man. So I'm just I'm just trying to stay in my cave here, man, to pump out some knowledge best way I can, man. You know what I'm saying? Good. So uh but look, so look, last, last time we, we distinguished these two kinds of violence, political and economic violence, and I think we touched on this, but it's worth kind of hitting it again for our, for our listeners to sort of get them dialed back in. Um, you had some thoughts about why uh, political violence, concerns about political violence, you know, again, we might need a, a rough definition of that, tend to dominate public conversations about injustice and inequality. Uh, and um, so can you sort of just give us just a bit on, on why you think that is
0: science? Um, so um, political largely concerned kind of uh, um, violence or damage done by some humans against others with regard the body. Um, sometimes the, the psyche, but mostly bodily violence, uh, physical integrity violence, what we call it in political science. Like the right not to be tortured or um, or beaten, or, or the like or the right to live, right, um, all, all falls within this category. Economic violence we, we, we discuss more broadly in the sense of. Um, 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 impacting someone's ability to kind of exist as an economic being, um, so losing your job or having wages cut or um, being evicted—all all these uh, were kind of manifestations of it. Um, what Johann Galton once referred to as structural violence. Um, and so I, I think um, political violence was the topic that garnered more attention, and and I think there's a there's a couple of interesting reasons for it, right? I think. Um, my boy Maslow um, will kind of lead you to um, the hierarchy of needs kind of stops if you're dead. So bodily, bodily violence makes sense as a, as a, as a starting off point. Um, and, and so I, I think there's this element of momentum built into kind of disciplines, right? Like, you know, Kuhn's discussions of scientific revolutions and so forth. There's a community that kind of, that kind of gets invested in a particular topic. And then you study that topic, and that makes moving to other topics, I think, difficult. And so, I think it's easier to study in many respects, right? Um, what what impacts the body, or, um, unfortunately, as my friend Patrick Ball from the Human Rights Data Analysis Group would say, um, people only die once, and the and the residue of that trace is um, is a little bit easier to follow than um, markets and value and other types of things that are a little bit more ethereal in many respects. So it's easier to study. And then people that study it end up focusing in on it and thinking it's important and giving awards and giving funding and so forth. And that builds up momentum. And then we end up with this thing. Um, we didn't discuss this maybe before, but another reason for, for studying it is kind of or, or the privilege of uh, of the privileged identification that people have with political violence as opposed to economic violence is. I think economic violence is more threatening to people. Of power in particular and so it's better to distract people with focusing in on this um, the, this bodily thing over here than to address this this other economic dimension that underlies all of it
1: good I like that last point and it's a nice segue into 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 what I want to say now and, and also get your thoughts about so as you know I, I dropped this op-ed you know when we were in the thick of this story about uh, the Megan Oprah interview um, uh, just sort of hit me, man. We have been thinking about these kinds of violence and some of the reasons why political violence um, has been more salient um, in people's sort of uh, thoughts about violence. And and so when I saw this story, and then I saw the spin that was essentially again, okay, let's let's think about racism let's let's find out where the royal races are and and that really became the big story and I thought you know this this is sort of has this this needs some contextualization um and so my reaction to it was, well if we really go back into British history and we think about uh the legacy of British imperialism. Uh, in particular, we think about it in connection with um, the occupation and conquest and economic exploitation of the West Indies. This sort of helps us get some context for thinking about racism in, in the Royal Front, in the Royal Family. And don't, so don't, don't forget India and my boy Ann too. No, no, definitely. That's what I said, in particular in the West Indies, but we, we could definitely talk about India too. And I know you got a lot to say about that. But but when I was so so my angle on the op ed was to say, look, these allegations are not that surprising if you start thinking about this history. And uh and so I kind of went there with the piece, but it was a way to sort of put the spotlight on economic violence because you can't really think about british us or any other kind of imperialism without thinking about the economic dimensions of that and then when you start thinking about the economic dimensions of that you can think about the relationship between economic domination exploitation of the people and and then forms of racism so that that sort of set me off when i heard that story and then i wrote that op-ed and and, and put it out there, and I, and I think it got some attention at the time. But I know you also had a moment too when this story broke that in in the crib. So so
0: tell us a little bit about that. I mean, I broke in the other direction, right, man? You know, like um, members of my family started to have a conversation about it. And I was just like hell no. What y'all talking about? I'm just like, I don't care about that. I don't care about the Royal family. And it's like, it's funny, right? It just like, there's some people that care about the royals and the Royal family and some people that don't. And I'm just kind of like, um, I care about the Royals in, uh, you know, um, Monty Python, the Holy grail, man. I'm just like, and, and then after that, I'm like, I'm like done. I don't give a damn about royalty. Um, and so, um, and I found it to be a kind of like, um, um, some gossipy kind of like conversation away from, where you took it right uh, away from the, the, the social and economic roots of like inequality and value of life and beings. I'm just like, it was like some, I'm like, okay, yeah, he might be, he might be a Royal n word, but I'm just sitting and going, you know, he's still gonna have access to the 10 or so thousand acres that the Royal family has access to. Maybe, maybe a small, smaller subsection of it for the black folk or for the darker Royals. But, but nevertheless, it's still this privileged conversation that I thought was um, really kind of, um, taken out of a broader context. And and I kept waiting, I'm, I'm glad you went there and it makes sense that you went there, but I kept waiting for like the popular conversation to be like, well, um, cause they try to make it about like, well, why would some of the Royals have this particular orientation? I'm just kind of like, um, as if they're not part of the broader culture and broader understanding of a, of a group of people who voraciously went around the gro- went around the globe to extract resources and do whatever they wanted to and did not have necessarily kind opinions of uh, the folk that were there where they went, and so um, it's one of an interesting moment of kind of like di- the divisions within your family. You know, everybody has them every now and then, right? Where you're just kind of like, why would, why were you approaching it in this manner? How could you think about it that way? I don't give a damn what they said. Oprah's still on TV. I'm like, literally, it was like it was, a, it, was it was an interesting moment. But yes, yeah, so I'm glad I'm glad you took it the way you did because I, I, I vibe more with that. So so on that note,
1: and, and and I know when we you know we talked off the mic about it, you know, one of the things that I sort of did right away with it, and, and I incorporated this into the piece, is you know, I, the last time we were in a classroom together, we we talked this powerful seminar on black political thought. And and of course we have this ongoing project of pumping out a couple of volumes on some of the thinkers that we studied, and, and Claudia Jones was one of them. And so one concern that we've had is to sort of put our heads together and think about the Black radical tradition um, and, and run Ptolemy on it, right, thinking about diagnosis, prognosis, and means, looking at these different thinkers. And, and so Claudia Jones um, was one of our first case studies, and, and, and you already gave a brief bio, but for people that don't know, i Claudia Jones was born in Trinidad, and she came to the U.S. very early on, you know, very young. You know, I think it was like eight or nine years old. So she effectively, you know, grew up here, went to school, um, um, but she was always very politically active. Um, uh, Journalist joined the Communist Party of the U.S., and most of her activity with the Communist Party had to do with really trying to organize people around dealing with imperialism, right? Because she saw this as like the biggest world challenge. Um, and so that was her her focus uh, and very critical of empire building and its consequences. So one way to sort of think about this bigger picture, to try to sort of get beyond the question of where is the royal racist in in Buckingham Palace or wherever they, whatever palace they happen to be in, um, um, is to think about this bigger picture and think about these larger forces. And so Jones encourages us to think about empire building, colonization, the role that race played in all of this. And in another figure that we thought about in our course, of course, was W.E.B. Du Bois. And and he was also thinking about these same issues. And both Du Bois and, 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 and Jones would certainly point out that exploitation was no stranger was exploitation was not like a new thing for Europe before they went to India and and Africa and uh, South America um, because they exploitation was act you know was was alive and well in Europe and and it just got to it got to a point where it had reached a certain limit and, and so you know we had to look elsewhere to figure out where to exploit people because we couldn't sustain the path at home people were starting to basically get on catch on to it. And so there's a big story to be told about what happens when Europe goes to Africa, Asia and the Caribbean and shifts the focus to the exploitation of foreign land, resources and labor when that goes global and how the tools of war and conflict are are brought to bear on this. So that's one way to set up like the bigger picture that we get from some of our black radical thinkers, one of the most significant of of whom is, is Claudia Jones.
0: So Science, go ahead and go ahead and drop something on this one, man. No, it was it's interesting that you went there, right? It's just like um because when we talked about this before, it's kind of like um what I didn't like about the gossipy bit was kind of like it was like who said who was saying what about whom. And and then you know, you were you were kind of prompting in a sense, it's like, well, what what should be asking? And I'm just kind of like, well, you know, who's got what? I'm like, um, who's holding what? You know, you know, back to our distributions of wealth, ownership, income across groups to understand what the what the structure and what the context is. But directly kind of going on with what you were saying a second ago as well, um, what's interesting, right, is if we're taking global history as this kind of guide point, the Europeans reach a certain point where they, they realize that, that there's an upper limit for exploitation, and and so they, they need to figure out a solution. And so partly after the revolutions of 1848, one of those solutions was democracy. It was like, okay, well, we need to give them something because they're getting upset and oh, we need to develop a welfare state because they're getting upset. Um, but then, you know, that wasn't sufficient because they still had some needs and they were still trying to pull some stuff off. So they were just like, OK, we need to start going to other countries and start using some things out um, and creating structures that will allow us to kind of expand our extraction and manipulation and co-optation and, and exploitation and so forth. What's interesting, though, is they seem to perfect the exploitation abroad uh-huh. and seem to have an endless stream of available access to resources and they have not yet hit that upper end that they had in Europe, which I find to be fascinating because when you look at um, like extraction from DRC for our cell phones and everything else, um, that, that, that extractive cycle has not necessarily been disrupted by the DRC becoming independent or the DRC becoming uh, democratic or becoming developed economically and so it seems like um the european powers or the elites have kind of worked out um, their system of exploitation in a way um, that they've been able to kind of like get away with what they couldn't get home couldn't get away with at home they've been been able to get away with it abroad and that um that kind of really struck me from what you just kind of like talked what you just what you just mentioned a second ago i was like i was like damn i guess they figured it out abroad um unfortunately for um people that live in those countries but but powerful, um, nonetheless. Well, well. one thing that some people, and you know, we've, we've had
1: a couple of episodes where we talk, we talk about folks that fa- fly the race first flag. Now, one thing they might say at this point is if you want to understand, you know, if, if, it, if it's true that the European colonial powers figured it out abroad, that is figured out how to sort of pull off exploitation fairly successfully and over a long period, or over a long run, Right. So we go back to the middle of the 19th century, but then we go we go into the 20th century and and, and through the, the first Great World War. And then, you know, subsequently up for the Second World War and then thinking about the form it, it's taken today. Right. Is, is another conversation. But but somebody might say one reason why they pulled it off or they had pulled it off successfully is because of the role that race played. Right. In, um in helping to make it so that their their populations went along with it, so to speak, right? And mm. you know, um, this is something Jones talks about too. Like one experience that West in- West Indian immigrants had when they came when they first came to the UK. Um, on the one hand, they were invited to come to help Great Britain, Great Britain rebuild after the war, right? But at the same time, they were the scapegoat for a lot of the post-war troubles, economic and otherwise, that pe- the Euro- that, that British the British pop population was feeling, and and they were scapegoated in part by the use of these racial. Tropes. So, so what do you say to folks that say, ah, see, see, I show, see, this is this is this just proves the point that if if the European project of exploitation of, of Africa, Asia, and the like was successful, it's successful because the role, the central role that race plays in, in all of that. So you all have been going on about, you know, raising some questions about the race first flag, wanting us to look at some of these economic issues, but you can't get away from the significance of, of racism in, 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 in sort of understanding
0: this bigger picture. I mean, I think part of um I think part of the comment back to that is the instrumentalist way that race is used mm. as opposed to the foundational reason why it's needed in the first place. I mean, so for economic reasons, uh, European and later American elites were going about their business and then they were trying to figure out how best to do it. In the American context, it's just like, okay, let's use these people. And so indentured servants who were white were, were used. Okay, that didn't work because there wasn't enough numbers. And the whites weren't putting up with it because they realized that things like freedom and other types of things. I mean, indentured servitude was a short term thing. And so you knew you had an end point to it. So that wasn't going to work. Then they tried the native population and, you know, you could call it genetics or whatever, or the rebelliousness of the native population. That wasn't going to work either. And so they were kind of like, okay, we need to, we need to solve this problem that we need some cheap labor that we can just exploit. And thus they get to the Africans. Although I remember reading something that I thought was interesting. It's like Africans um, or people of African descent in, in, in America in the 16 and 1700s were indentured servants. So they became free and they had as many rights as white folk. And so in many respects, that early life, Kind of like indicated that race wasn't a problem from jump, that everyone had these expectations of freedom and entrepreneurship and so forth, and that the racial construct comes later on as it, it becomes necessary to kind of exploit the back population. And so I remember reading something about like blacks in America in the late 1600s, and I'm just like, I'm like, what? Um, and they were getting they were getting freedom, they were getting property, they were getting all types of things, and I thought that was that was fascinating. But what I find interesting is it's the economic motivation that prompted Europe to go to Africa in the first place. It's the economic motivation that prompted them to kind of exploit their own people to the best of their abilities for as long as possible before they were not able to do it. And so at the root of the thing seems to be economics. And, and then at the end, the management and the effective management end of obfuscation and misdirection and so forth seems to be race. Okay. So,
1: so to make sure that we, you know we we keep in this thread which is, which is sort of this this effort to think about the different forms of violence and and maybe you might even say their relationship to different kinds of imperial or colonial projects
0: mm-hmm.
1: so we've got this particular case study of great britain there are also other european colonial powers but we're not you know we're not really we don't we don't we're not thinking about them at the, at the moment yeah. so say something about the different kinds of rule mm-hmm. That we find there's more direct, there's indirect, and, and the relationship between those kinds of rule and the different kinds of violence that we're that we see or we have seen historically mm-hmm. in in facilitating that that kind of rule, and then something about different pathways people have taken to mm-hmm. to to deal with that, and and speak maybe specifically about the British experience. Uh, contrast it with maybe another, another colonial power, but just to give us, just give us a handle on it. (laughs) It's
0: like, oh brother, brother, please give me five or a thousand years worth of history in five (laughs) seconds, please. (laughs)
1: It's just a snapshot, man, just a a, a minute version, man. We gotta, you know, be kind to our listeners, man. I got you, I got you. So so,
0: so, I mean, so you have the fundamental distinction of the kind of direct versus indirect rule, right? And so direct rule is we sending in in troops, we sticking up a flag, and we're sticking guns in your, in, in, your, in your faces and you're going to do what we say we and start, we start wasting people. Mm. Alternatively, you try to get slick, the indirect rule, which is while, while you're owning everything and, and while it's all for your interest, you're basically bringing up a particular class of individuals within the geographic location who are going to front for you. They're basically going to be your point people. And when people start to rebel against somebody, they're not going to be rebelling against you, the colonial power. They're going to be rebelling against their um, the dominators that come from their class. Um, And so uh, the indirect rule is quite is quite savvy in that respect because they've been able to kind of like hide who owns what, hide who's governing and make people feel like they're being run by they're being governed by them, by their own. Um, so I'd say the violence is uh, so. There's economic violence that'll be in both, right? But um, you'll have more bodily violence in the in the direct form because um, you need it for shock and awe. You need it for intimidation. You need it for um, clearing the field or getting rid of people who are actually threatening you. Um, and then the epistemic violence as well. At the same time, you're going to have to control ideas, right? You're going to you need to kind of like you need to check that self determination thing, and let's talk about democracy and democratic participation, um, and try to redirect individuals away toward away from the kind of colonial extroita- exploitative extractive project, and get you thinking about things like you are a Britisher or you are a member of the United Kingdom, and so forth. Um, and the Brits were very good at the indirect form of rule. And indoctrinating whole populations. Um, in the Indian context, um, we get to some. Uh, so you have the you have the the, the five castes, um, untouchables not being a caste included, but um, basically outside of the caste system. And so these folks were on the bottom. And so when the Brits came in, they aligned with them to basically. Uh, whole whole court and try to dominate the others by by giving them education which they never had before by giving them status like they never had before and so by inverting everything they basically created a group of individuals who'd then be beholden to them for all these other things and bechtar comes from a military family he got education in part because they went they were, they were on a military base which gave him enough education that he would not have had otherwise give him enough education to become the person that he um, that he becomes subsequently um, and realize his place Um, so the path of the exit becomes useful, right? Because the smarter, the smart, the smarter colonists were kind of like, okay, you know what, we probably need to step in order to keep our money. We probably need to step this overt kind of manifestation of like um, foot on the neck because people starting to get upset. We need to, we need to pull out. Um, the, the thicker headed ones were kind of like, we're not, we ain't ever going to leave this cause we're going to, we're getting paid right now. We, we wish to continue getting paid. And if anyone gets in our way, we're going to, we're going to have problems. So the anti-colonial struggle versus the colonial struggle is important to understand and exactly how that sets the pathway up later on. Cause those that stepped out, um, there's some, there's some points where, um, it could have been contentious, but then it's less so. But what's really interesting about the time period, though, of the kind of extraction of people leaving, the European powers leaving, is effectively they created this space where basically people were kind of like, they could imagine, African was able to imagine kind of like a new, a new moment, a new space like Lumumba and, and Croma and a bunch of other individuals are coming in. They're just kind of going, you know what? This is a space now where we could we can create whatever we want to. Or we Pan-Africanism and all these other things came in. And that's where things got real subtle in the sense that the the colonial powers on the way out realized what they couldn't let stay. And so fundamentally, people like Lumumba needed to go people like Incruma needed to go. And so systematically folks were getting assassinated. There was coups and so forth. And so that, um, the bodily violence comes back in. And meanwhile, the economic violence is continuing throughout the whole thing. The economic violence is just like just parading through this thing on a repeated uninterrupted basis. I got this book called The Looting Machine that talks about 5,000 years worth of extraction of resources from Africa. And I think that's just like, that's just like some powerful thing. And it also facilitates this generational dynamic where you're basically then indoctrinating into power a bunch of Africans who are going to step in to continue the economic project that was established under colonialism except under the under the realm of independence. So we end up with a bunch of African experiments with socialism for a second and then authoritarianism that allowed the economic thing to continue um, and a lot of that got distracted. Right. So right now we talk about African dictators or we end up talking about African dictators and we miss this whole thing about the economic extraction and how that continues. Mm,
1: that's powerful, man. Goodness gracious. OK, OK, OK. So so we got to we got to uh, we got to break this down a little bit. And, I'm, and, and again, I'm, I'm thinking about Jones and since she's important for us here. But you, what you just said about Lumumba and we can think of many other cases like this, this, this sort of purging of radicals, different ways in which radicals get purged and, and, and you know, we, we got to spend some time thinking about why that is. And also just in the U, US context, thinking about the assassination of Martin Luther King, and, and, and it happened at a time when he was moving away from the traditional civil, civil rights focus on, on racial discrimination and thinking about poverty. And thinking about the war, uh, broadly thinking about economic violence as we would describe it, uh, similar thing with Malcolm X. Uh, we think about the persecution of Angela Davis, right? Sim- similar thing. And 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 then of course before before Angela Davis, there was Claudia Jones, right? Who who was tried under the McCarran Act um, for unAmerican activities and, and sentenced to a year in jail, and then eventually just deported forced to deport, leave the U.S. So it's as if there's this pattern that we can think about historically with, with different colonial powers of so-called radicals who are who are pushing this button of, of saying, look, let's think about the reasons for all this stuff that, that's dogging us and, and, and keep coming back to this economic issue. So one of the ways Jones is setting this up and thinking about the experience of West Indian uh, immigrants to Great Britain in the middle part of the 19th century and, and going up, in, in, you know, to the 50s and, and, and so forth is, is she 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 bars a distinction from uh, Louise Bennett, a Jamaican folklorist, between external and internal colonization, um, and, and and well well really. The the, the 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 what she borrowed is this idea of colonization in reverse, mm-hmm. right? So internal colonization um is what happens when you get the immigrants coming to the UK and then thinking about their experience once they get there as what Jones would call you know second-class citizens, right? And and so she tried to use this construct to to, to diagnose the situation of West Indian immigrants in the UK. Um, And part of this diagnosis had to do with helping us understand why they left the West Indies. And then when they got to Britain, why they face the extent of discrimination, destitution and unequal treatment that they ultimately received. So. Here's like a diagnosis that forces us to take into account a larger set of reasons why people leave a place, right? And what factors account for that. And then the choices they have to make about okay, which which are they going to go to America <laughs> and, and what that what's the experience gonna be like in America, or are they gonna to go to Britain? Right. And you know, and and either way, they're gonna to have to face certain challenges when they get there that have to do with them being colonized within the place that ultimately first came to their homeland and colonized them. So what do you think about this broad distinction then that Jones sort of stresses for us between external and internal colonization and helping us make sense of some of these these patterns?
0: So as much that's a good description, right? Um, mm. And may I say uh, mm. Mr. Brother, in, in part because of that type of question man so mm. now, you, you you warm the heart you warm the heart um that interaction um but what, what's interesting right um so i'd accuse claudia jones of of underplaying a discussion of um the mm. bodily violence right mm. um and so the people are going because of the economic exploitation and basically they can't get they can't get decent jobs and they can't get decent um um opportunities and there's no land left and so then they go to the Metropole, effectively, um, underplaying the bodily kind of police violence is probably directed against the domestic population and making sure there's no labor unions and making sure there's no leaders and so forth. And so um, the violences always seem to go together. And she's, she's you know, for, for good reason, playing down one. But that was one thing that kind of struck me. And so and then it's like and then it's like it's not like everybody left. Right. So there's 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 limitations of where you could go. Um, in terms of uh, the U.S. stopping people and the U.K. taking people. Um, and then there's a certain, there's a personality differential, right? Who stays and who leaves is also important. So I'm imagining the people that leave are more, they're more risk-acceptant, they're more entrepreneurial, and they might have greater connectedness with the people that are there. And and that becomes useful later on because, folks are going to have to stand up for themselves and engage in some kind of civic, um, civil disobedient activities are challenging. And so um, I don't think we should be subsequently surprised that by, by limiting these people, these entrepreneurs, these go-getters, these risk-takers um, who've now moved their whole being to another place that they're willing to fight for kind of like what it is. Um, and so I think that's interesting, right? But at the same time, so on 168, I like this piece, um, emigration for the West Indies has served for over two generations as a palliative A stopgap measure to ease the growing economic frustrations in the largely impoverished agricultural economy in which under colonial capitalist imperialist relations, the wealth of these islands is dominated by the few with the vast majority of the people living under unbearable conditions. And so it's like folks aren't leaving because, you know, you know, they love. They love our freedoms. They're not leaving because um, they had a shot at home. We dev- Their homes are devastated by imperialism and folks are then leaving. And so um, I like the pivot in many respects because thinking about things this way, it then makes you realize that folks left the West Indies just like they're leaving Mexico or Afghanistan or Colombia because of what was done to their countries, rendering them unbearable. Mm. And so, so, I mean, um, and, and I think Angela Davis made this comment, right? It's like if we sensitize individuals to understanding how um, imperialist nations like the United States, like the UK, impact countries of the world, forcing their people to then get mobile and go someplace that's reasonable, occasionally being the US and the UK or France or Belgium or whatever, we might have different attitudes towards how we see these people at the gate. Mm. Rather than see them as like mm. freeloading, potentially dangerous, or entrepreneurial, or um, or people willing to kind of exploit opportunities, rather than view them that way, we view them as as victims of capitalist and, and militaristic exploitation. These are what these are the these are the refugees, but not just of political violence, but also of economic violence. And so I, I think that. Um, I think that um, prism for how to evaluate um, current situations here and abroad um, is is incredibly powerful. So here's here's your influence on me, man. Um, so
1: I just came up with a hypothesis that a good social scientist could try to test. What? Yeah, man, just hit me. Is what you were just saying? I mean, you. It's gonna. It's not gonna be probably so well formed, but but. Oh, go, go, not,
0: go ahead, go, go ahead, drop, drop it, science. Oh, we're gonna switch, we go switch, we go
1: switch now. Oh. Here, so here's a hypothesis, right? Um with more awareness of economic violence and its global consequences on migration, might we find people more open to less restrictive immigration laws, <laughs> because see, here's the thing, as you know, the other thing Jones talks about, the way, the way the UK responded, right, to what you just described was essentially with more restrictive immigration laws that specifically targeted people from the West Indies. And of course, the US has its own history. Like now we're talking about anti-Asian violence. Right. But a hun- little more than 100 years ago when, when you know, in, in 1917, for example, in the U.S., the U.S. Had, had just adopted one of the most restrictive immigration laws that had ever passed, which essentially targeted people from Asia and, and the Pacific. Right. Mm-hmm. And historically, we've seen selective immigration laws. Right. That let some immigrants in and typically we know what the patterns look like and and make it harder for others. So the thought is, if we could sort of get people to understand this bigger picture that you just described and how we have some serious responsibility for who's showing up on our doorstep, are they going to be more open? To restrict <laughs> Can we test? Is that is that a testable hypothesis? Or is that, what I, do you think? I think it's
0: testable. I, I almost want to say somebody might have explored it. Um, so my mm-hmm. colleague, my colleague, uh, oh. brother, brother Vincenzi has got some stuff that okay. talks about um, yeah. making people aware of the, um, the 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 economic inequalities in the United States, okay. and, and see if people are more uh, empathetic with regards to kind of like others. And and the answer is okay. no. And so awareness, but we as educators like to believe that awareness to a topic will make someone, no, yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't mm-hmm. generally tend to work out. So, um, mm-hmm. I, I think your hypothesis is, is more than reasonable and incredibly testable, but I think the difficulty is going to be, um, that even, even you provide somebody with more information about a topic, they'll be like, we don't have any responsibility for these people. Um, and I think this gets back to a, a cultural thing of uh, wait, 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 pause for a minute.
1: Isn't that hard at all, man? Can't you make can't you make a pretty strong case for how our way of life in the US is very dependent upon how we treat people in Latin America, how we treat people in Africa, how we p- treat people in in India. Just think about import export, think about, you know, issues having to do with
0: the climate, you know. I mean, you know, I'm not saying I don't think I don't think uh, I I believe that there's a connection. I'm thinking making that conveying, conveying that information to Americans is very difficult. Consider this in discussions of slavery, you'll have current contemporaneous white folk going, that wasn't me. I mean, this is one step removed. That was, that was a relative of yours. This is a corporation acting under the banner of the United States. I mean, so it's like, so the, the direct connections are, are going to be missed, right? It's like, how am I responsible? The American, I think, will go, how am I responsible for what this company does in that country? And you'd be like, well, you're a stock owner. Okay, but most Americans don't own stock, right? You're so creating,
1: you're creating the market for the goods.
0: Look at what you're wearing. Where's it been made? I, I agree with you. I think this is a hard thing to do, especially in a society where education is 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 so not a priority. We do not have enough educational funds going out to folks for them to handle. What you've just described is a very complex process, right? Mm-hmm. Creating a market, uh, some company will come into existence to then feed that market, and they realize they can do that by going to this country or that country over there, and then treating their laborers poorly so that they can get things back to the market in the United States. You're not talking international finance in a in a in a population where 40% believes that the mm-hmm. sun revolves around the earth. That's a hard that's a hard story to get through, brother. And, you know, I like complexity.
1: But, you know, here's the thing, man. Like, you tell me if you've experienced this. I know when I give, often I give talks, public talks. So, you know, the last book I published was this book on The Achievement Gap with historian John Rury. And, you know, part of what we want to do in this book is lay out the history of unequal education in America and the role that race played in that. And inevitably, I give a public talk and people want to go in the Q&A, they want to go to, okay, what, what can we do about it? <laughs> like, uh, what's, the, what's the solution? What do we want to do?
0: Yeah.
1: Now, one thing I know humanists often say, now you, you can tell me if social scientists say some version of it, is, well, we got we to gotta raise awareness. Of the problem, so this is why we write this book, right? This is why we do this study, yeah. so we can raise awareness. Now, whenever we make that move, we're operating on the assumption that the raising of awareness can actually move people. Now, you, I suspect, there's an equivalent of this response that the so you're going to give in the public lecture as well, definitely, right? Um, where they want you to stretch beyond the data that you've collected and the results that you have inferred from the data set that you've analyzed. They want you to do so- they want you to sort of extrapolate from that, say something b- broader yeah. So what are you saying, man? I mean this this
0: move we make about raising awareness is just it's not enough and, and, and what it involve the other thing that it involves, which you're not going to like, but the other thing that it involves is marketing and packaging. I know you don't want to talk about that, but you raise awareness, but if it's not marketed properly, if it's not if it's not packaged properly for someone to be able to take that message in, then you've raised awareness for your little click in the guild cuz folks aren't ready there. So, we always do the knowledge part. It's like we do we do the part that we think, "Hey, I'm trained to do this. I'm not trained to do that." And that's that's part of the reason why I think much of what we create is just dropped on folks that don't know what to do with it. I mean, and we, we deal with this like like we're doing this right now. It's like, we're not using any jargon. We have plenty of jargon we can access, but we're not doing jargon. Okay, so now we've realized that we need to use a more colloquial voice, a regular, our regular voices to communicate with folks about different concepts. Okay, that pivot took some time because we were so jargoned up for a bit. and But once we've like, now mastered our craft. We've now figured out exactly what we believe is truth. We've now figured out what might be derived from it. We now need to think about, okay, now how do we communicate with people? And I think we spend so much little effort on that last part that, not that we've wasted time with some of the academic stuff we've done, but that's why it's in the little echo chamber that it is because so few people are in that space to be able to take it. And now we generate information. Part of what we need to do is figure out how to get it to people in a way that they could hear it.
1: Okay, I, I'm really fascinated by this man. I get that, but but I'm also really not, not that I haven't been before the conversation, but deeply concerned about a lot of things. But let's just let's just sort of stick with this for a minute because I think this is really rich right now because there is there is what's happening on the U.S. southern border now, and this is this is going to be a nightmare. It's not going to get any better. But it was happening under under the last president. Okay now here's the thing: the last president of the United States said, "Look, hell with everybody else right we're going to put the, we're going to put America first right and we could argue about what the hell that actually means that it might mean well some Americans first, right the ones with with the money and the influence but anyway that was the that was the marketing as you put it that's the marketing slogan yeah now that translated into a really aggressive border restriction policy for particular people. Not everybody, but for particular people. And you know, with with no distinction between women, children, families, it was it was fairly aggressive. Now we have a new president with the Biden administration who wants to take a different line, you know, more humanitarian, more in line with our deeper values. you know, his Catholic faith, obviously, is probably influencing how he's pursuing this as well. And also his view about the history of America as a society of immigrants. Yeah. Right. Now. So there are two strategies. There's the there's the hard line. We're going we're going to fence. We're going to fence ourselves in and we're going to keep most people out. They're going through some shit, but they got to work it out. They, ain't, they They can't just come in here. And then there's the other line that says, well, no, we 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 got to sort of give people opportunity to come, right? And and we can't we can't have a hard line. Now, what I what I'm wondering, and this is what we're we're, we're thinking about, there's stories to be told about why people from Guatemala Guatemala are showing up on the US southern border. Yep. And some of those stories have to do with getting into Jones, getting into these histories of imperialism and and, and so forth. Yep. Now, you're going to say I'm saying the same thing, and maybe I am, but I'm just, I'm just trying to figure this out. I mean, are you really saying, man, if we just lay that out, our sort of complicity in this as a nation, the reasons why people have, are migrating here, that that's not going to really have any impact on American public opinion about what we might owe these folks as, as a matter of sort of justice, man.
0: Hey, I, I, I two things come to mind. One, mm. um, America likes a happy story. Mm. It don't like any, it don't really like any bad story. It likes, it likes, it likes Rocky. Mm. He gets knocked out, but he comes back. Mm. Um, America likes the, sto- America likes the story like laid out by like Samantha Powers about genocide. The premise Uh, of her book is the United States hasn't done enough to stop genocide. What's uh, not in her book, the genocides that the United States helped foster. uh, You saw how well that book did. She won awards. She got in government service. People view her very highly. And I'm like, case selection. You didn't deal with every case. And what about the US complicity with mass killings around the globe? Nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to hear that negative story. And largely, and and so you have the book that just came out, um, The United States of War, talking about U.S. involvement in bodily violence throughout the globe since the founding. No one wants to hear that story because that would then be the America that people, you know, that's the shining light on the hill. Where'd that come from? We had the shining light on the hill image of the United States while we were fostering coups, assassinating individuals, um, arming individuals around the globe, taking out challengers. I mean, so um, our perceptions of self, our perceptions of ourselves within the nation we've seen over the last four years are mm-hmm. divisive and unclear. Our, our visions about how we've engaged with the rest of the world that needs some serious revamping and discussion because many individuals can see that we've why do we still have 800 military bases around the globe why do we have more foreign military bases than almost any than and than any other nation in the globe why it's like our our actual involvement in the globe and our perception of what we do in the globe i think are very diametrically different from one another
1: Some point we got to talk about Hollywood, I guess. Yeah, you know, that, that, the, role that's it, the role it plays in, in telling the happy story. Yeah. But then I think I think about all these movies we we see, man, with black folk, and the story is not really that happy, man. I mean, there's there's typically some kind of savior, often not a black one, <laughs> that sort of comes in and tries to sort of
0: save the day. Those but, movies, those movies aren't generally that popular, though, brother. No, no offense, but it's just like you know. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm just like you know. But think of the most popular movie mm. in history ever, mm. the Black the Black Panther. Mm. That's a happy story. Mm. But, but that happy story is there's a group of black people that were incredibly well developed because of their ability to, to hide from American and European imperialism, mind you, mm. and. And, and without that perturbance, they were able to develop one of the most advanced societies on the planet. Uh, that's the most popular movie in global history. Uh, I'm like, damn. Which is working through some crazy counterfactual stuff. It's just like Wakanda is hidden from the rest of the globe from some superior technology so uh, that they can't be exploited like everybody else. <laughs> it's like, I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, and so I think that um, the, the myth-making is incredibly – but that's a happy story, man. That's why people – that's why people would like it. There's no, there's no, there's no story. Um, Blood diamonds was not as popular as that movie because that made Africa look horrible. I mean, and that story was basically about Leonardo DiCaprio anyway, mm-hmm. um, and, and the noble, the noble white that he was on helping the people that he could give the little diamond to and all this other business. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's a separate reason. But I think our our perception, Americans' perceptions of ourselves within the world, is very different from what Jones communicated when she was alive and. What I think many people understand to this day, and many people are not asking that question. It's like what is america's what what should America's role in the world be? what could America's role in the world be? what has America's role in the world be? those like three questions I doubt are asked on any survey ever
1: mm. mm. and you got you got me thinking, man, you got me thinking this is this is good stuff, man, so uh What's the way forward if we, if we leave it here, man, where where do we go from here?
0: I mean, I think, I think the very straightforward pivot is, um, is to marketing and persuasion. Mm. I think we have a tremendous amount of information that is available about, I mean, so my friend's book is out, um, or this guy's book. That's that's just another form of
1: raising awareness.
0: No, no, no. It's raising awareness effectively. We've just, we've just, we've just been generating data and writing books. We have we haven't. So, uh, okay, so how many books? So the religious are there? right. So the religious right back in the, when they back in the sixties and
1: seventies when they wanted to sort of outlaw abortion. What you do is what you show a pictures of abortion, failed abortions, that for example to get people mobilize public sentiment against the practice. That's what we're talking about.
0: We're talking about effective mobilization like that.
1: Hmm. How, how do we how do we effectively mobilize against police violence
0: against black black people? First, we have to acknowledge. So for, consi- let's consider Floyd a case study of sorts. Mm-hmm. Why do we have the largest, or why did we see the largest mobilizations we've ever seen against police violence in American history? And partly, it was the clarity of the message shown on the video, that we had the technology to distribute it to so many different people. Mm-hmm and then everyone was able to kind of get behind you know what that's unacceptable mm. we've never had such clarity and so that communicates that okay you know what in terms of mobilization it's possible to mobilize americans but the message needs to be clear in your face accessible and really unspinnable. and that's that's very useful
1: so th- and notice though but if if that's it then then that takes the cognitive stuff out of it it becomes a very effective effective in in a sense of affect, right? Yeah. Uh mechanism. Right. So then you know, where does that leave the work of the humanists and the social scientists that take themselves to be generating you know propositional type of knowledge that you would hope to deliver to people and then the you'd hope the light bulb goes off. That that because what what role is that going to play if in the end we need to get to people's
0: sentiments affect? I mean, it's not as if it's not as if logic and data do not work on some parts of the population. Ah, but if we want mass, if we ah. want mass involvement, we need to understand. Ah. We need to bridge both of these worlds. Oh, man, so we like.
1: We, There's don't a quest, bro. we don't need a podcast quest. We need to we need to do something completely different then. Oh, no, 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 no,
0: no. That's just it. We need we need this in addition to the scholarship, because our conversations are based on decades mm. worth of scholarship on a topic. Mm. And we're now speaking about it in this manner. And no offense, but you wouldn't speak about it in this manner in your top journal, and I wouldn't do that in my top journal. And that's where we've been. Mm. And so from that perspective, we need this multi-level thing. It's back to the movement on a movement of movements, right? We uh-huh. need folks we need folks that if you look at if you look outside if you look outside the store where Floyd was killed, uh-huh. there's now a mural. Uh-huh. That, that that mural is composed of thousands of people coming and putting things there. And now people can photograph the mural and that gets distributed around the globe. Okay. Now we're discussing digital arts. We're talking memorialization. We're talking all these things simultaneously. We're talking surveys about people's opinion about different stuff. All this information is being generated and needs to be brought to bear, which if you think back to Jones, she, she had like a newsletter and like, you know, a stump. And so it's like, you know, her ability to communicate information was so, was so diminished compared to what we have now but what we're comparing what we're comparing now is navigating somebody through some very kind of complex thicket of global interactions mm-hmm. and getting people to kind of see other human beings not necessarily seeing the person who's in front of you that's part of it but understanding where they came from as it relates to forces unseen mm-hmm. so the people at the border i mean people see thousands of people amassing at the border, and they're just like, what the hell are they doing there? It's like, understand that that story is connected with some U.S. corporation who left Cleveland or Oregon and went to some other location in Mexico and mistreated somebody. that kind of com- compelled this village to then move, and then th- those folks end up on, on, and they can't get work elsewhere, and they end up at the border. We need to basically put those processes together to help us understand who these people are at the border. And that might influence our opinion about that. And so that's, that's psychology. That's, that's music. That's film. That's all those things concurrently need to be undertaken in order to get someone to see that, which interestingly enough, that's Jones. Cause mm. Jones had that Jones had that, that, that vision yeah. that, that we, I mean, mm. back to systems thinking, right. That we are all connected. That that the immigrant comes here not because of some isolated sense of their 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 greed or their desire to take advantage of a of a location. It's because someone here did something there, they did something there, they did something there that compelled them to leave home. Hmm. And that's not easy. That's not easy at all. Yeah. And so I think um, so. So we need we need everybody to pull off that kind of raising of awareness but it's not just raising of awareness, right? It's just like, oh, it's like, mm. it's, it's raising of awareness and contextualization and building empathy. And these might be related, but they might be distinct. And so I, I think that, um, that element is pretty, pretty powerful and encompassing. That's good, man. I
1: appreciate you for that, bro, man. That's a, that's a real honest response and, and one that shows humility and, and appreciating the limits of what our guilt can deliver. Right, um, our guilds can deliver um, in terms of what we need to to create a more more just and humane future. Um, man, so much there. I, I appreciate our listeners for hanging with us. Um, hopefully, hopefully we, we we you know we stayed on point enough here and then weren't too too stretched out on this. But I, I do think we made some good progress from where we started. So uh, yeah, man, there's, there's there's still a lot to to be on top of, but but I think science man we we've been you know you know how i feel sometimes man I think we just laboring in the wilderness man nobody paying attention but you know we, we just gonna keep doing what we're doing right bro and that's uh, true, that's true. You know, hopefully we we could get a chance to do some empire building and, and and bring in these these different disciplines man to uh work collaboratively together to to, to give us a bigger uh, and a bigger perspective that that can that can embrace the complexity and not run away from it, right? Just 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 plot it out. So we gonna we gonna keep working toward that. So uh, I think I'm good. I think I'm good for now, man. Take us home, bro.
0: Yo, that's um, that's perfect, right? You know what? I think um, that's the logic in the data for day, man. Let me take your line. Oh, peace, brother. All, all good, peace, my brother. If you're interested in a deeper dive into the subject, you can go to see our website www.doingtheknowledge.com. You can hit us up on Twitter at Doing Knowledge, or look out what we're doing on Instagram, Doing Knowledge again. Um, that's the lines. That's the logic and the science for the day. We out. Peace. Peace.